Hello and welcome. This is the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them, and how to try not to mess it up. <laughs> in our very, very humble opinion, I'm Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director, and a producer. And today, I did the final bits of ADR on The Dare. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been talking about my film, The Dare, since the very first podcast I did with you, way back a year and a half ago. And I am so close now to finishing, getting full picture lock, full everything lock on the film. Now, we've already got one version of that, but there's an alternate version. So we've got European version, and now we've got an international version, more for the American market, different endings. And uh, we're just about to finish up everything on that one, and then they're both going out to market properly. Obviously, it was at Cannes uh, through Millennium, but... Uh, we've still got those final bits to do and I'm super excited that it's nearly there so I've been doing score this week tweaking that and I've been doing the sound mix and now that final bit of ADR oh my gosh and we're nearly there now it's credits and hopefully by June the 1st that's what I've been told we should have a finished version so I'm super excited about that A Serial Killer's Guide to Life is going to have some very exciting news very soon that's the film I produced and I've been watching cassette this week Um, the new cut of that feature as well, the one I produced. And Boudicca starts editing this week. Yay! Go us! Uh, it's all very positive and all very exciting. Um, last week, obviously, we were in Cannes when we did the intro, and probably a little merry when I did that, for those of you who did listen to that episode, which is a fantastic episode. The full episode is brilliant. Robbie McCain did a brilliant job of editing that with Alberto Sciamma uh, and Matt Hookings, all about I Love My Mum. And there is a screening of that this Friday... May the 31st at Prince Charles Cinema. You want to go? Tickets are available. I'll be there. Um, a few of my mates will be there. All the crew will be there for my love, my mum. I imagine Robbie McCain will be there. Turn up. Get some tickets. Come say hello. Love to see you. Okay, this week's uh, episode is with the fantastic Jim Cummings. I've been trying to get Jim on for a long time, but he's been very busy because he is. He's just made the film Thunder Road, which is huge. Everyone's talking about it. And I was been, I've been messaging him and DMing him and going, please come on, please come on. Uh, eventually got sorted out through the fantastic people uh, at DDAPR, Jess and Megan, and Holly at Vertigo, who are distributing the film in the UK. Thank you, girls. So Jim Cummings, wow. Um, it's just great. I can't wait for you guys and girls to listen to this. Um, he talks about how his short film uh, of the feature film, Thunder Road... Um, won the Sundance Grand Jury Prize and then he went on to make the feature and the difficulties of trying to get that off the ground in the first place, interestingly um, and how it is being released again this Friday the 31st in cinema so go see it this weekend, really go see it we chat about how he made it, what his inspirations are and how you can go make your indie film too just like Jim Cummings has and one thing that struck me about Jim was how honest and open he is um, and he gives so much knowledge to you. Um, so I look forward to you. Look, give me some feedback on what you thought about this episode and what you think about Jim. Do follow him and tell him how amazing he was on this podcast. And if you do like this podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes um, or wherever else you can find us. We're pretty much on every platform you're listening to this on. But if you haven't subscribed, do go to iTunes and give us a nice review. Why not? Um, you can find us at Britpodstein or the Podfix Network 
Yeah. Uh, and if you want to get on the show and you've made a feature film, well, how about the other way around? If you've made a feature film and you want to get on the show, um, contact us on Twitter at FilmmakersPod or me at Giles Alderson. Tell us about it and you can be on the show as well. Always looking for good and exciting and upcoming guests. By the way, we have some amazing ones coming up. Filming. Recording. I'm not filming them. I don't film them. Um, we're recording some tomorrow as well, so that's really exciting. And we might have a big guest as well. A big, big guest coming up. Maybe not. These things fall apart and I'm busy. And so I just try and get the best out I can too for this podcast. Thank you for listening. It means the world to me that you listen. And it was so nice to meet so many people in Cannes who do listen to the podcast or have been on the podcast. And that was lovely. So thank you for coming to say hello. And thank you for supporting this podcast. And do tell your friends. We today are delighted to have collaborated with ScreenCraft. Uh, now, ScreenCraft is a fantastic organisation that helps screenwriters and filmmakers. And they have collaborated with us. They're our new sponsor slash collaborator. And you'll be hearing a lot more about them on this show from now on. And I'm super excited. They, ScreenCraft, are dedicated to helping uh, connect emerging writers, ScreenCraft.org, and filmmakers with career opportunities um, they do uh, talent discovery programs and education for screenwriters. It's, they're pretty amazing. So that's why I'm absolutely over the moon. Screencrafters help hundreds of writers meet and sign with literary agents, managers. They've optioned their screenplays to Hollywood producers. They've got hired by major studios. Uh, they've got staffed on TV shows and they meet other industry creative professionals. It is the place to be. And the ScreenCraft team would like to give an especially warm congratulations to this week's episode guest, Jim Cummings, and the entire team at Vanishing Angle, uh, who are behind it, on the brilliant success of Thunder Road, which is a wonderful example of how an independent short film can lead to a great feature film and find success through independent distribution. And if you are planning to make a short film, check out ScreenCraft's 2019 short screenplay competition, which is now accepting submissions. Uh, featuring judges from Cannes, Sundance, Short the Week and Shorts TV. Submit your short screenplay before the final deadline, July the 31st, which is a month Friday. Um, and you can learn more about ScreenCraft, short screenplay competition at ScreenCraft.org. Links will be in the show notes. And additionally, ScreenCraft has partnered with Bondit Media Capital to offer grants of up to $30,000 to independent filmmakers worldwide. $30,000 uh, boys and girls, ladies and germs, uh, the ScreenCraft Film Fund is currently accepting applications at ScreenCraft.org. Link is in the show notes. Welcome them with open arms. Uh, go say hello. Follow them on Twitter, ScreenCraft on Twitter. And uh, go visit them. Say the Filmmakers Podcast sent you. See what you can get and get involved. Screenwriters and producers, this is for you. Yeah. Okay, before we get to this week's episode, because I've rattled on too long, but it's important. Uh, I know Jim's amazing, and we didn't have that much time with him, so I'm allowed to rattle on a little bit at the beginning here. Um, so our friends at Raindance are going to bring you a selection of iconic movies on the big screen in front of young audiences. But in order to do so, they need your help. Uh, so help make independent cinema accessible to everyone by donating to their crowdfunding campaign in aid of the emerging filmmaker strand at Raindance 2019. It's a programme full of unique cinematic experiences for 12 to 25-year-old audiences, including filmmaking masterclasses, screens of cult indie films and Q&As. So donate now, help them make a difference. And if you are a young screenwriter between 12 and 25 or a filmmaker between 12 and 25, get involved. 
do it now i know there's a lot of you out there that do listen to this so do contact rain dance and check that out it's the emerging filmmaker strand link to all that will be in the show notes but do donate and do help them it will make a difference for up-and-coming filmmakers if you can Okay, let's get to today's fantastic episode. And I do say fantastic because it's Jim Cummings and he's ace. As myself and CJ sat down and had a brilliant chat with him. I mean, he was in the UK, but I couldn't I couldn't find him on that. I was either shooting Boudicca or I was in Cannes when he was in London. So we sat down in Manchester and we had a brilliant chat. Robbie McCain, thank you for editing this episode. Here it is, the Filmmakers Podcast episode with Jim Cummings. Enjoy. I am delighted to welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast, Jim Cummings. Hey, thank you for having me. It's an absolute joy to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Good to have you. Whereabouts in the world are you now? I'm in Manchester. I got here about three hours ago, and we just did a workshop for BFI. There was about 15 filmmakers that came in, and we just talked about how to make things work. What was your advice? What did you say? Um, your- just quit while you're ahead and just, you know, stop. No, no, no. We, don't uh, do it. Yeah, don't, don't do it. Look at me. I was actually just panhandling around the, the crowd. Um, no, it was, uh, it was good. We talked about just doing it yourself and different ways to do it it's funny it wasn't even like creative conversations it became about like you know cutting trailers and licensing music and not licensing music and all kinds of stuff it was really good it was like the practical aspects of how we've landed where we're at okay that's interesting i suppose that's i mean imagine because you'd be doing loads of press and publicity about thunder road at the moment it was quite nice to talk about you know other side of filmmaking and and all that it must be quite interesting talking young students yeah it was really great and it, it wasn't even necessarily like style stuff about long takes or anything it was yeah it was more about the the practicals of being a filmmaker in 2019 which is a good education i think yeah i think so too absolutely so we obviously this is filmmakers podcast where we talk about how people get their films made how they make money myself and cj filmmakers as well uh, and we, we've always really en- enjoyed talking to you know, uh, filmmakers like yourself who go out there on their own in a way and get things done and get films made. And it's something we preach about a lot, and which is why we're delighted to have you on the podcast talking to our listeners about exactly what we preach about. Because you're that perfect example, as far as I'm concerned, of someone who has done that and done it brilliantly. Um, you started, you know, in, in a way, you weren't, as far as I can tell, an actor, but you started off making, directing, and producing short films. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that and about your background and how you actually wanted to become a filmmaker and got into it in the first place? Yeah, I so yeah, I'm not an actor. I've never taken an acting class. I was a producer for six years, seven years working for friends. I had taken directing classes at uh, a college in Boston for four years and then graduated and realized that nobody was going to hire a 21-year-old to direct anything. And Mm -hmm. so I started producing for friends of mine who were doing hand-drawn animation and sketch comedy that was doing well on Vimeo or YouTube. And I just started making their next projects. And I was doing stuff for very terrible rates and like very small (laughs) budgets. But we ended up just making kind of a studio. I was able to jump between different productions and um, we were making music 
videos for this rapper named Lil Dicky in America, in Los Angeles, and then making animations that would do the festival circuit. Um, we, we were very lucky. We ended up just like focusing on the craft and betting on ourselves and doing cool stuff. And in doing so, we uh, met filmmakers all around the world who were making bigger stuff like feature films or giant commercial campaigns. And so I was able to make ends meet that way. But still, I didn't have much creative input. I was producing for a filmmaker named Patrick Wang and Danny Madden and Tony Ascenda. And we were all doing very different stuff between those three filmmakers, but I didn't have any say. And so I, I took a job at a comedy company called College Humor, and I was a line producer of branded content which is kind of a soul-sucking job. There's not a whole lot of fun <laughs> stuff to it. I was just trying to like yeah. find a way to incorporate Mentos into a sketch, which was just the worst. Um, what did you do? How did you do it in the end? <laughs> uh, it was like we would have these brands. We had like ad sales departments at the company, and they would reach out to different brands and um, agencies to see what kind of branded content, uh, like what brands would want to finance sketch comedy because we had mm. like 10 million subscribers or something like that. And so wow. they were like, Mentos wants to spend a certain amount of money to have a sketch on the platform. Let's just write something specifically for bad breath or whatever. And, uh, and we, sure. we want it risky, but not too risky. Yeah. And a lot of like, we have to have a special video village set up for the client and like Perrier and all of that stuff. It's so, like, I became very good at organizing those kinds of sets. We were usually doing them two or three times a week. And, uh, I, that, I guess that just became ambition. I was like really down and out about it, but I found out how to organize these things cause I was doing it so often. And I was like, well, well, shit, why don't I just like organize something for myself? Why don't I make something that's actually funny or actually important to things that I wasn't really doing while I was there? And I was like, well, yeah, if I could just organize the same thing, get friends and people who I've hired a thousand times here to come in and shoot something in six hours and then just rehearse it, like that could be really great. And then a buddy of mine told me a story about a, a kid who sang a song at a funeral. And I was like, mm. that could be a really cool monologue for an actor. And it just snowballed. I spent two months workshopping a eulogy in my car with a Bruce Springsteen song and then shot it in six hours in a funeral home. And the rest is history. That is incredible. Such a great story. And Thunder Road, the short film itself, was it made such a splash, uh, even in the UK here, when it got released and it had done so well i just remember going i've got to see this film because everyone's saying you've got to watch this short film it's fantastic um did you i mean obviously because the experience you had in terms of making you like say you made a lot of shorts a lot of films that you produced either cinematographer or directed and suddenly now you're making something and you're, you're playing the lead um even though you've done a bit of acting before that i'd say you know here and there was it something you always set out to do was to play that lead role and direct right and make it so no i was planning on just directing it i there was another actor who i was buddies with who looks a lot more like a police officer than i do he's like much more muscular and uh, i worked with him for a minute about like the script and workshopping it, and i realized when he was doing it it just wasn't funny. It was just really tragic. And I was, <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay. And I was like, if you just get that script, it's just going to be heartbreaking. And I was like, no, I think it could be like kind of like funny, kind of Alan Partridge style, like interrupting mm. himself in non sequiturs and being able to see how the cogs work inside of this character's brain. And so I filmed myself on an iPhone. And I was like, let me, I'll just show you kind of what I'm thinking. And I sent it to the cinematographer and the producer for the short. And uh, they cut out the actor from the email 
and they're like, no, dude, you have to do it. This is great. You have to be the one to act in this movie. Wow. And I started to grow my mustache out the next day. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Incredible. Now I'm going to be a cop in this thing. And I guess that's that. And But it worked how, out. How how was that sort of, yeah, I was gonna say, how was that, sorry to interrupt, but how was that going suddenly directing yourself? Um, I, I just feel like acting is just self-directing anyway. It's like anytime I'm in the frame, I'm thinking about how much I should turn so that the camera can see me. And if somebody's walking in front of me, how much they're going to block. And, you know, I, I have really trusted people behind the camera. And so that's really helpful where it's like they, they can, I can trust them to make it great so that when I come back behind the monitor and I'm like, I think I got it. I think that was the best performance I'll do. And they go, I think we got it then I'm like, cool, we can move on. We don't have to watch playback. That's, that's good. And it, it, it's, it's taken years to, to do that, but it's nice to have that now. Yeah, absolutely. And what was really nice as well, it was pretty much one shot and that was the setup. That was the idea. Did you always plan again to do it that way? Because it's not easy to do a one shot. Yeah, you know, no, that was, the, that was the point. Um, yeah, it, it, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it, and the hard is what mm -hmm. makes it great, to quote a league of their own. Um, <laughs> but but it's, it's true. Like I, I came from hand-drawn animation, and each frame had to be animated. Every sound in the movie had to be re-recorded and then changed. Like I, Hard was very common to me, and so when I was transitioning into live action, I was like, well, if we could just do it in a long take, that would be incredibly complicated and and challenging and equally impressive for an audience like the, if it had just been an, uh, an edited commonly edited short film conventionally edited short film it would just be a weird short film about a dude giving a eulogy but mm. in it, it being a long take it's incredibly impressive and you feel present inside of the experience of being a voyeur watching this guy have a nervous breakdown i totally agree and it's really nice it's it's actually beautifully done if you've not seen the short do go see it it's thunder road you can get it pretty much anywhere now the short film uh, and it's stunning um and then this takes us on to your feature uh, of thunder road obviously the success of it did did you then think right i'm now going to turn this into a feature straight away was that your plan no. And for, for a year afterwards, I was busy doing nine other single take short films. We had people reach out to us after Sundance to like make more content. And so I just, I wrote and directed and co-wrote and co-directed nine single take shorts. Um, was that Mentos? Was that for Mentos? Uh, no, no, no. Mentos wasn't involved in those ones. Um, uh, oh, yeah. This is yeah. like, it. Real yeah, the robbery, Frolic and May, It's All Right, It's Okay, American Folk, those uh, Pyramid Circle. Uh, so those were all uh, for, for other companies. They were for streaming platforms that, that helped us to finance the things. And so I was busy doing those, but the whole time people were like, well, how do you make a Thunder Road web series? Because like, they had seen the success of our short form stuff. And I thought, I don't know if I want to do that. I think that would be pretty lame. And then I had the idea for the feature of starting the movie with the short film rather than that being the climax like a mm. year after we won Sundance and I was like okay well that would be pretty cool why don't I just start it with that and then the rest of the movie would be this like sad sack of a dad trying to you know claw back the relationship with his daughter and that would be really funny and really tragic um, and so I wrote it in my friend's basement over like five days one one like winter evening um and uh, and just like you know, hunkered down with a bunch of Budweiser and listened to Bruce Springsteen albums on YouTube, mm -hmm. uh, and then that became the screenwriting process. So yeah, I, it took me a long time, but then as soon as it, it kind of happened over a long period of time, and then it happened all at once, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's amazingly really well uh, balanced in terms of one minute you're laughing along 
at it and with it and the next minute you're heartbroken it's a really fine line and you're constantly as a, a viewer traversing that how, was that a conscious you know how 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 aware were you of that as you were making it well in, it? entirely i mean that was the goal in writing it i write it out loud and the goal is to make the audience laugh and cry at the same time or like sure. weave between the two of them some of the, those are my favorite movies i mean that's like getting the full breadth of the brain it's like tapping different lobes of the brain and engaging mm. audiences completely it's not just drama drama with no comedy and it's not just comedy with no humanity you can do both at the same time and audiences reward you for it. Like Pixar movies do that really well. There's this great scene in Inside Out that I won't ruin for most people, but there's a really wonderful scene of self-sacrifice and it's a, it's a setup and a payoff, like a punchline, except it's incredibly emotional. And then it ends with one of the characters saying, goodbye, bing bong. And it's the dumbest name ever. So you like literally <laughs> like, yeah. like set up for this cool action scene and then you're crying your eyes out and then this one girl says this line and it's that you remember that the character has the dumbest name ever and then you're <laughs> laughing again and then it goes on yeah. the next scene and it's like you don't that's so uncommon and so difficult to craft um to like weave an audience's experience on this roller coaster and i knew i, I could see that in pixar movies and I, I couldn't see that anywhere else at the cinema and so i was just like cool i'm just gonna i'm gonna make little live action pixar movies that's so cool and it is such a wonderful film it really is so much fun and dark and twisted and it really is like watching a guy have a mental breakdown and you know a personal meltdown and it's absolutely fascinating and like say heartbreaking how did you go from like you say you did it in the short but it might have been easier because it's one take not easier but it's still difficult but it's a one take thing now you're making a feature and you're directing and you're starring in it and you're pretty much in every scene how does that work then for you how do you work with your dp how do you work with your you know your production team it's it's all extensive rehearsal and planning and um with the producers because we didn't have a big budget at all it was just long conversations about what was going to be in the frame at all times so like does it have to be three police cars? Do we need the full, like, put, like in the script, it says, like, the full police mm. squad comes out to, like, pull Jim off of wrestling this guy in a parking lot. Yeah, uh, exactly. And it's like, well, do we need all three cars? And then I'm thinking about it. I'm like, no, we just need two in the background. And so then instead of having five cars that would cost us a fortune that day, it's like, no, that's all I need for the frame. So it's like literally going through each moment in the script and breaking it down like a line producer would of like what actually needs to be in the frame. And then for for other performances, I record a podcast of each screenplay and I put in sound design and music. I don't like read the direction of like interior mm. police station night. I'll say like John walks into the police station and then like put in the sound of a police station and put in music and then record it over, you know, a couple of hours of me reading the script and then mix it for like a day and a half and then send that out to the cast and crew so that everybody before showing up on set can listen to the movie a month in advance as many times as they want. And it, it just kind of gets everybody on the same page in a way that reading a script conventionally just doesn't. That's great. Wow. I've never heard anyone do that. That is absolutely fantastic. Really interesting. I mean, yeah, that's clever, um, time consuming, but also really great to get your crew, you know, involved in the same way you are and get into that headspace, which can be really difficult when crew come in last minute. You know, I suppose also, you say, you say time consuming, it also, I suppose, claws back a certain amount of time by. A couple of days here will 
Wow. A huge oh, amount. And also, cool. like, yeah, you, like I have complete control over the time that I have in prep, so I can I can spend some time in Premiere mixing this thing in a closet and recording it, mm. and like on the iPhone voice memo app, and then mm-hmm. sending it out to people. And then that means you know at least I don't have to spend forty five minutes talking to an actor saying, "Hey, you yeah. completely misunderstood this scene from the script." Like it's very easy to misinterpret a text message or an email. Like why would you let somebody misinterpret? entire performance you know like so I, and so like i it, it's humiliating to listen to it's me playing a nine-year-old girl uh in some <laughs> scenes but it's like it was very worth it it's like the and and you don't really care like i, I grew up listening to the harry potter audiobooks and jim dale is such a super talented voice actor yes, and he plays yeah. he plays hermione and hagrid and it's like nobody gives a shit it's like it's still it still works totally we had Stephen fry in the uk and i love that jim dale did it in in america even though he's australian so, so is there ever a danger because of my sort of big thing and i always watch myself and this is don't you know, don't give an actor a line reading and you know don't sort of do the performance for them so is there a danger in that process that you're effectively giving the your other performers your version of their performance is that something you have to be cautious of um i'm a lunatic with that i feel like i <laughs> i throw that out every second i think that was something that came about in the early days of theater where it's about control uh, actors want to have complete control because directors usually have it and them saying stuff like don't line read you're not allowed to line read is this yeah. control mm. that they have where they're able to to maintain the the performance but it doesn't make the content any better and it doesn't work in my experience like I, I think if you were going to write a joke for somebody and they were fucking up the punchline, you'd say, no, that's not, you have to emphasize this word. You have to put italics on this word. Like yeah. there, there is a right way to tell a joke and there's a wrong way or a worse way to tell a joke. And so I, I think it's just a comedy is so performance based. It's so, it's all about how it's delivered. And so like, I just never let that up to, to risk. And really it's only older actors that feel that way. A lot of younger actors are like, I'll be doing a scene and they're not getting it right and then they'll say you do it Here, let, let me hear you do it because i'm an actor a little bit yeah and so and so i'll do it and they're like oh see it sounds great when you say it and then, hold on let me do it and then they'll just do it and get the inflection right or the cadence or the pacing or whatever complications there are in language um and then we do it it's like they don't want to fuck it up they want to make sure that it functions inside of the scene making a movie is so complicated you, you shouldn't let it up to risk that somebody's going to mess it up love that that's so true and obviously you had kendall far who's as crystal as your daughter in this who is fantastic um and casting a young kid is difficult how did you go about obviously casting the film obviously everyone had seen the short and that would help massively how did you go about getting her? We had we have an incredible casting director named Vicky Boone in Austin. We're shooting in Austin, and so we hired a local casting director, and she cast Tree of Life. Uh, and so she had a lot of experience finding really wonderful young actors in the area. Um, yeah, she found Ty Sheridan basically at like a grammar school in Texas playing football, and then she was like, or like in a cafeteria, and she was like, "Do you would you ever want to try out for a movie?" Um, <laughs> so so she brought in like thirty different girls from age four to. 12 and uh very quickly we we found that kendall was going to be the one it was like we narrowed it down to probably 10 and then i met with those 10 the rest of them were all like videotaped auditions and then kendall came in and she was able to do the comedy and the tragedy 
back to back and knew all of her lines completely off book and was just very kind and fun to be around and enthusiastic and talented. And that's kind of how we cast every position on a film set is talent and enthusiasm alone. Um, but, and it was the best decision of our lives. She's like this little funny mascot who, whenever we were shooting scenes that she wasn't in, was like climbing on members of the crew. She was like everybody's little mm -hmm. sister in this really wonderful way. Um, yeah, but she'd already she'd only done industrial videos before. She wasn't really in a lot of narrative stuff, and so this was her first feature. And she she shines in the movie. She's so good, man. So natural. And like you say, from working in that theatre way with her, therefore it becomes very natural for her. And imagine she just said that you do it then, and then, yeah, I could see that. And you go, all right, try it like this, and then she just did it. And it's very natural what she does. Very good. And she had a copy of the podcast, and she and her mom would listen to it in the drive, and then she'd have her little like earbuds and her iPod, and just like listen to it and walk around listening to it. And it was just like this radio play that she would listen to. Um, and she's so funny. She like she was still very young. She didn't get some things like um, in the last scene of the movie, uh, so that I could cry in the in the ballet scene uh mm. i was pulling up pictures on my phone that made me cry and it was uh, a picture of um princess diana it was like really beautiful portrait of her and uh and i'm starting to cry and she leans into me we, we had this is on film she goes uh who's that and i said it's uh it's lady diana princess of wales and she says uh did she live next to the ocean and I, I think that she thought like she, it was like whales, like the animal. And, oh, uh, and yes. so, and so I started laughing, looking at her and then she was looking at me so earnestly and I said, action. And then we started rolling. And then that's the take that's in the movie. She was wow. so earnest and so lovely and so funny and she didn't know it. And, um, yeah, it was great. That was how we ended the film. Okay, let's j jump back tiny bit then to talk about raising finance for this then. Because uh, it's good for our listeners to know they're all, a lot of them up and coming indie filmmakers. They've made one or two features or some have made a lot more. But in terms of you raising the finance, I imagine off the back of the short, it might have been easier, but we all know it's not. So if you would, uh, tell us how you managed to get the finance for this film so winning sundance with the with the short film it, it didn't qualify us in hollywood at all like people didn't wow. take us seriously we went to and knocked on doors for people who were um you know we, we were trying to get financing to make the feature for very little money it was one hundred and ninety thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars american that we were trying to raise um, and people said like, well, make it a $6 million movie and come back to us for whatever yeah, reason. I, I, sure. I have no idea why. Um, and so it, it didn't really qualify us as anything better other than like their competition. Um, yeah, I guess like once we were no longer their subordinate, nobody wanted to help us, but it really, <laughs> it really qualified us as creators with the public. So like we had put Thunder Road on Vimeo, the short film on Vimeo mm -hmm. and it, it had gotten a decent amount of viewership. And so like the public really loved it. And so we were able to raise like what we were asking for on Kickstarter in the first 24 hours. We raised like 10 grand or 12 grand in the first 24 hours. And then we raised 36,000 over the next 30 days. And then because of the success of the Kickstarter campaign, we had strangers from the internet reach out to buy percentages on the back end. So like they were like, Hey, you can't, I couldn't donate to the Kickstarter anymore. Is there any way that I could buy a percentage of the movie or percentage of the company that's making the movie? Um, and so we sold off percentages of the movie for 12 grand a piece to lovely people all over the world. And that's how we gap financed the movie. I love that do you know what? the power of the people sometimes is so impressive when people get behind something and believe in it 
then it suddenly becomes alive and it's like, well, no, no, this is great. We want to see this made into a feature. And that's, is really lovely to hear that that can happen. And yeah, really clever. Jim, how do you, how do you get into, uh, obviously you're a producer on Thunder Road too. How do you switch the various heads from writer, performer, director and producer? How, is there a point at which you just sort of step away from the producing? And what is that? Yeah, point? it's usually it's usually a week out where I have to transition into just being the actor and director. So like yeah. I'll, I'll, I was on set or I was on location in Austin, Texas, probably a month before we started shooting. And that was like actually me going out with my other producer, Ben, and a location scout to like lock down locations and like talk to the managers of the businesses and signing contracts and local casting and you know, getting, you know, signing on wardrobe and art direction and, um, just like assembling the, the required assets of what the film was going to need, uh, a month prior. And then like a week before we started shooting, uh, I was able to bring on my other producers to come down and help out. So I had four producers on this. It was Matt Miller, Zach Parker, Natalie Metzger, and Ben Wiesner. And we all stayed in the same Airbnb. And so it just became our little like production hub that was also the main character's house. So like they would right. be living in the bedrooms and working in, in the bedrooms upstairs while we would be shooting the like patty cake stuff in the kitchen downstairs. And it just became this really functional film studio, um, despite the fact that it was this like really modest Airbnb. Yeah. So I, I feel like it, it, I kind of had to transition a, a week out just to be able to finish memorizing lines and you know, talking with the cinematographer about all the creative aspects of the film and just lying up all of those things to knock out. Um, so yeah, I, I do end up transitioning out and then, but then the whole time I'm acting like I'll, I'll, we'll do a take and it's really good. And then I'll run into the video village and like my producers are there and they're like, yeah, that was good. Or like, Hey, it was out of focus in the first part of it. Let's do it again. Um, it's kind of always switching hats and jumping between roles. Because he's quite on edge, the character, the whole time, Jim, did you find that that was difficult sometimes to be in that frame of mind where, you know, and it, the guy is on edge. He is literally go, oh, what's he going to do any minute? Like he's picking up the kid's desk and stuff, you know, is he going to throw it? What's he going to smash? Was that easy enough for you to get to those places, especially when you're, you know, you are directing, you've got to have that sensible head on. I think you end up like once you, once you memorize it, once you rehearse it so many times, it becomes muscle memory. And so like, if you do it, you know, and, and we were having production meetings and I would go outside and just act out the parking lot scene in like a coffee shop parking lot or in like the corner of a coffee shop. People must have thought I was insane. Like absolutely insane. I, yeah. yeah I, I must have it. looked like a fucking lunatic talking to myself in a parking lot. And sometimes I would put my headphones in, like my iPhone headphones in to make it look like I was on a conference call shouting. Yes, like you're talking to someone. I've done that before. That's yeah. amazing. And so and so that helps. Um but but no, I mean like really just from how many times you do it, um, you kind of know, and, and you have that preparation of like, okay, I, I wrote this scene so that I take all my clothes off and shout at people and it's, you know, freezing out and I'm going to have to do that at some point. I keep saying, and then we have him do this. Like, oh yeah, and then we have him jump fences and we're going to do that stuff. And people had to keep going, oh no, it's you. Like, you're going to have, you're going to have to do that and it's going to suck. And I was like, oh yeah, 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 that's right. Oh yeah, yeah. And how many fences can I actually climb over? Can I actually do that? Can I not? Yeah, yeah. But, but that was kind of always the goal. The movie was supposed to kill me. It was supposed to be this really gruesome um, experience to have to survive but that's like the point i love jackie chan movies and that guy always breaks bones on his movies doing it and it's like Mm -hmm. that's what it takes to make something timeless and impressive i think yeah 
How do you how did you juggle again? Because ju- there's always going to be someone from wardrobe or someone from you know props or whatever. It's because oh you, you know you want this gun but you've got this gun or you want this top. This is the top we got. You know those last minute changes and decisions that get made. Uh, how just for going for a take? How did you control that kind of stuff? Or was everything prepped so much that no decisions such as those were being made on the day? Yeah, so very luckily I have a team that's incredibly competent that I basically, you know, found through doing these 10 other single take short films. So like we, we, we probably hired over that time period 200 people and we have this incredible core team of 25 or 15 or 10 whatever the production is and it's all people who i love to hang out with they're like family it's a summer camp that we run and at the end of the summer camp we have a movie um and so all of them are extremely competent so that when we have production meetings that is literally crawling through each line of the script i and all of the department heads are there i get to say hey this is what's in the frame charlie it doesn't have to be a police station it's actually going to be this warehouse i just need you to paint a blue line on the wall and have like some police stuff in the background and he's like on it and he shows up on the day with a bunch of different options of what to do and then we just make it work there there, there are times where like things don't turn up when they need to be there and it just kind of sucks and you have to pivot but i mean we've never we've never had a really serious glaring problem and if we have it's been covered up from me and Absolutely. you've got a very sort of distinctive shooting style. So I guess once you've worked with these people enough times, they know the kind of thing you'll be, you know, you read a script uh, and they'll know the, the way you'll likely shoot it. Yeah. And, and like, I'm, I'm very loud about that in the production meetings of like, this is actually one long shot. So we can't store the grip trucks anywhere near this part of the frame. It has to be the block over. And so then Natalie is like, cool. That means we have to block out this like business parking lot to store gear. And then like all of that is in the DNA of the project. And you know, as long as you're vocal about that and having really in-depth production meetings, um, that's how any of this stuff gets done. It's quite interesting that you said about doing the long tail. Was there any point where you thought I could make this whole thing a one shot? Was there, did it cross your mind at all to do a single take um, or, or so, a pretend so, one at least? So, know, for, so for for, the, for that movie, each of those shots that's supposed to be a long take actually is one one long shot. And like all of because we didn't have the budget for really getting coverage, it was just the amount of footage that we needed each day. Um, each of those moments of like cutting, like every time there's an edit in the film that's purposeful of like exactly when the cut needs to happen and we wouldn't cover the scene from another take from that angle, from a different angle. It was just, ex- we, I knew exactly how it was going to be put together because I had to. We didn't, we didn't have enough money to get any other coverage. But there were times on the new film, um, we shot a werewolf movie in March and there were times on that one where it was like, just for how big it was and for how little time we had in a location, it was like, okay, instead of getting the five shots that I wanted to get here, uh, let's do single take coverage of this moment and we'll just make it work. But you didn't think at any point I could actually do the whole thing, like do as, you know, a Victoria style one take film or was it just, that was just too far out of reach? When I was thinking about that, yeah, I didn't really want to do Birdman. I feel like editing is such an art form. Uh, mm. I, yeah. I don't know. I think, I think that was kind of already done with those two movies or Russian arc. Um, I, I don't know. And that's a very specific style of filmmaking. And I, I don't necessarily love those. I, I don't know if it works for me. Um, to tell a story that way, I or at least this story that way. I wanted this to be a legacy movie where we kind of like 
show up in this character's life at certain times and you kind of couldn't do that from, you know, outside of continuous uh, footage. So I don't know. I wanted to show passage of time and this guy going through a mental breakdown. I guess we could have done it. There is a world where it could have been just at the funeral home. But I don't know. I don't I don't know if that would have been a better film. Yeah, I hear you. No, I think it's a brilliant film as it is. I'm just interested in whether it, it crossed your mind or not. Um, OK, so for those of you who don't know what Thunder Road is about... It's an emotional and affecting, comedically tragic drama based on a police officer's journey after his mum's death and his attempt to perform a Bruce Springsteen song, Thunder Road, at her funeral and his subsequent meltdown, all the while trying to keep his relationship with his daughter intact. And to whet your appetites even more, here is the Thunder Road trailer. Hi there, are you Jimmy Arnaud? I am. Hi, I represent a local law firm. I'm here to serve you those papers. From a law firm? Am I getting sued? What am I getting sued for? Not my concern. You won't be able to see her. She's just going to be living with me. Hey, sweetie. Fine, just keep going. Okay. I'm sorry, honey. Do we have to go that fast? That wasn't fast. Look, man, I'm sorry. We couldn't make it. I'm actually kind of glad you didn't. Oh, yeah? My mother was an extremely charitable woman. She loved Bruce Springsteen. She used to sing Thunder Road to me when I was going to sleep. Everything go okay? Everything went normal. It starts out and there's a harmonica. The court has testimony that you practiced reckless behavior at funerals. I lost my daughter in Stop! You're in my back! You didn't hear that! You ruined my life! I never ruined your life! You ruined my life! You saw that goddamn video! Who danced on a funeral? In my culture, we do! Is that right? What? Right into the fridge. I thought it was a burglar. <laughs> Shit, man. I didn't mean to call you that. I'm sorry. Oh. Okay, okay. I'm fine. I never been better in my life. See me wrestle an alligator, help the alligator. <laughs> so what about the song then? Because that's quite interesting. Was there ever any issue from Bruce Springsteen with the song Thunder Road? You know, in the title of your movie, especially with the short as well. Was there ever an issue? Did it come across as we're not necessarily allowed to use it? No, it was mainly social censorship. It was mainly friends and family and the public being like, this is the dumbest thing that you could do. You didn't get permission and you're right. You're gonna, <laughs> like, you, you should have yeah. gotten permission beforehand. This is what they teach you in film school. You're an idiot. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. I'm an idiot, but I've made the thing and it did well at the film festival and I don't know what to do. Uh, all I wanted was for this thing to be online for free. Like, how can, how can we not... It'd be such a tragedy if we weren't able to put this online. Mm. And so I called his lawyer and she was lovely. Her name is Mona um, and talked to her and she was, she wasn't upset at all. She was, she got it. And she was just kind of like, Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, I wish he had reached out beforehand. And I was like, well, no, 
nobody would nobody would talk to me beforehand. Like we tried to do that. It's so difficult to get in touch with people. And then um, he eventually saw it and was fine with it. And I wrote an open letter and they said, yeah, you can put it online. Just give us a thousand dollars and just put it on Vimeo and you can only have it on Vimeo. Right. I was like, okay, cool. It's fine. He needed a thousand dollars. He's desperate for a thousand quid. He's like, I have to have a thousand quid. I'll do it. <laughs> but they were very nice. And I, I think it's like a love right. letter to the guy's music. It wasn't insulting mm. in any way. It's a weird performance art piece. I get why, um, I, you know, you, you, somebody, some artists might not want to have their song done to Jim, cop Jim doing karaoke, but, uh, but yeah, no, it was, it was a really, it was a really good movie. And I think that was the reason why it was okay. Um, and then mm. for the feature, we shot it both ways. We shot it with the song for the funeral nine times that morning. And then we took a break for lunch and then we shot it nine more times without the song with the alt eulogy that ends up in the movie. And the performance was just better in the later takes that day. And the camera work was kind of more on point. I feel like it wasn't, um, predictive mm. in any way. It was just kind of watching this guy. I feel like we got a, every department got better towards the end of the day. And so we just used it without the song. And then the Springsteen family watched it on January 5th, uh, 2018 in their living room and loved it and sent me a nice message on uh, Instagram. There you go. It's a nice little circle that came around there. They actually went, yeah, endorsed the film. Uh, that's really cool. But yeah, it is a lesson for people to do get permissions. If you're going to use the name of someone or a song is, uh, yeah, think about it and actually try and get permissions from the beginning. Um, though it did work out in your case and I love that it did. You were saying when you made the short and as much as that was massively successful, it was still difficult you know, to get something made unless it was six million. What's happening now then for you now that this film's come out? And again, it's done superbly well uh, and it should do because it is brilliant. Has the doors opened again or are they still going, yeah, we want to make six million pound projects with you. What's what's kind of next for Jim Cummings in this world? Yeah, I mean, I've been we've been very lucky. I just shot a new movie. It's my first studio movie that had a bigger budget than, than Thunder Road, a much bigger budget than Thunder Road, which is really nice. It's a werewolf film. Um, it's a horror movie. It's a genre movie, which is new for me. Um, but no, man, I don't know. I feel like my, my instincts are still to just do the smaller budget stuff that you can make. Like, I, I feel like right now I'm at a place where I, I could kind of do whatever I wanted. Like, because I'm writing stuff that has such small budgets or is set up to be movies that we shoot in backyards and in parking lots with our friends, focusing on performance and impressing audiences... Um, I, I don't think that there's anything stopping me. And, and but but to answer your question, no, I, I don't think. Like the reason why I did the studio film was because I really liked the team over there, and they were nice. They're like friendly people, and I, I consider them. I consider them good friends. Um, I, I can't say, unfortunately, the, the press the press release hasn't gone out yet, but it should be out in the next week. Um, but it's a major it's a major American studio, and they they've been very very lovely. Um, and, and yeah, I don't know. There were just people who I liked to hang out and eat and drink with. And they came out and they were like lifting sea stands and carrying pots of boiling water for the hot tub scene. No way. It was like really, wow, really, really nice, uh, wonderful studio executives, I guess. Um, but, but yeah, no, I, I feel like anything that I want to do is going to be stuff that we can control and shoot in, in a summer camp style. And so if you, if you focus that, if you focus on that being the ceiling of your experiences in film, 
home, you can never be unhappy. Like you're not chasing a daydream of making a space opera or, um, you know, trying to do the $6 million movie and convince somebody to let you do it. Like uh, I always say, uh, the Soderbergh line of do one for them and one for you. And that means that you make something and you own it. And it's like a, a property that you manage for the rest of your life. And that becomes your retirement plan. And, um, and also just like a fun thing to do for your friends. You get to build showcases for them as actors and um, performers. That's so good. It's really interesting to hear. What about some advice then for filmmakers from starting off who are trying to get, you know, their projects made or get their shorts out there? Um, how did you do it? How did you get Thunder Road out there? What did you do with that? And what advice can you give for filmmakers? Uh, well, for the feature, we ran the Kickstarter campaign and raised money for the Thunder Road feature, but that's because it, the, the short film had won Sundance and had won you know, film festivals around the world. And we were very, very lucky. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm a bit of a victim of survivor's bias there. Um, but, but for the feature, we just, we just found an audience. I had made 10 short films, uh, and put them on Vimeo. Not all of them had screened at festivals. About half of them had, had screened at, at, at festivals around the world. Um, but a lot of them I just put up and then that kind of built out an audience of people who wanted to see stuff from us so that when we were raising money to make a feature film, it was, it was easier. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I see people like Joe Penna who made Arctic this year, Mystery Guitar Man. Mm. He's the, he's incredible. Um, but he was just a YouTuber. He was like making YouTube content of him playing guitar with sunglasses on. That's how he started and then built an audience on YouTube and then made a movie that was accepted into, you know, certain regard in, in Cannes. It's like he, it's in, he was able to build an audience that helped him to make movies and now he can do whatever he wants. I feel like anybody can do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyone can go do that and they can do it. But it's, I suppose it's that point of once you've made it is how you get it seen and how you get it out there. Well, did you just apply to quite a lot of film festivals? Did you put it out that way uh, with the short in the first place? With the short. So there's a, there's a platform called Film Freeway. That's a short film and feature film submission platform, like without a box before without a box went under, but they're really great. And they have these channels, these lists on the side of the page on the left that have um, Academy qualifying festivals. And I, I never really cared about winning an Oscar, but usually those are the festivals that have the most attendance and the most press that um, are like general interest in the movies that play there. And so I just go down that list anytime I'm submitting a short film uh, and just checking out their deadlines and finding out which ones are open right now. And I submit through there. Um, for the short film of Thunder Road, I knew that Sundance was kind of the big one and the deadline had just passed, actually. I missed uh -huh. the deadline, the late deadline. And so I got on Twitter and started searching for Sundance programmer in people, just like that term, and found about 12 programmers and tweeted at them. And I was like, hey, look, I just made this thing. It means a lot to me. Um, we shot it like two days after the deadline. Is there any way I can submit a rough cut? And uh, I didn't hear back from them. And then about four days later, I got a message from one of them saying, sorry, we get 300 requests a day for waivers. Um, the, late, the late deadline is $85 and you put in this code and you submit through without a box. Um, just send, send whatever you have. And I submitted it and it was on Vimeo. It was a Vimeo copy, which meant that although it was really rough, I was able to go into the back end of Vimeo Change and, and yeah. re-upload yeah, through the replace video functionality. And so 
like halfway through the day, if it was a weekend, I'd be cutting the movie and halfway through, like when I was going to lunch, I'd export it and re-upload it so that it was the newest copy. I have no idea what version of the movie they watched. Amazing. Um, yeah, it's really crazy. Um, and so I just did that. And then we got in and then I did the same thing. I sent out the Vimeo link to, you know, 40 film festivals that reached out and gave me waiver codes because it was in the selection at Sundance. Really nice. I love little stories like that. And do you know what, for filmmakers, sometimes it is about going that extra mile and going, I might have missed that deadline, I'll miss that producer who was there. But do you know what, I'm just going to send them a message anyway. And I think Twitter is a powerful tool. Yeah, dude, we're all on social media, like everybody's on there. And I feel like the, like mm-hmm. that timidity of reaching out because, and, and sometimes, you know, most times they don't reach out. Like most times some, you know, people are too busy or they don't have time to do it. But like, I reached out, um, I reached out to uh, studio heads and like the head of Netflix, Ted Sarandos on Venmo because he's on Venmo and like I requested two cents from him for his two cents on my movie and like didn't hear back from him but that certainly showed up on his phone like there are ways to be able to get in touch with people nobody's untouchable you know like I think I think we just imagine that nobody's going to want to hear from us. But if you make something, I was manic. I knew that the short film was really good. And so I was I was willing to go the extra mile to to get it out there. Yeah, and you did. Uh, Jim Cummings, honestly, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thunder Road is released on the 31st of May in the UK. Uh, Jim, can you tell us, is that cinema? Is it digital? What's the situation? It'll it'll be in cinemas across the United Kingdom on the 31st of May. Wow. How good does that feel? That must feel amazing, right? Feels pretty good. I'm looking at my team right now and we're all stoked. Yeah. Especially for, like you say, a 200 grand movie, uh, that's, it's super, it's super brilliant. And the film is fantastic. Uh, what about the US? Because we have a lot of US followers as well. Um, when's it, it's already been released there. Uh, can they get a copy of it now on, on home entertainment? On- yeah, it just came out on iTunes and Amazon Prime so they can watch it there. That is fantastic. And speaking of social media and being able to follow people, where can people follow you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Jimmy C. That's me. Super. I've got a question. Go on. Jim, have you still got the tash? (laughs) I shaved it at the rap party. I couldn't get that thing off my face fast enough, man. It takes takes two months to grow and it's so horrible to have on your face. You look like an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what was if you had to do reshoots what was then you was just growing it back in time can you grow it quick no i, I purposely made sure that we didn't need reshoots yeah i like <laughs> I, I grew it out twice i grew it out for the short film and the feature and i was like jesus christ now i have to do this thing again it's terrible <laughs> terrible it's terrible yeah next time make sure you don't yeah the facial hair of your next character you play speaking of which are you going to play anything else i mean not looking at your imdb you played uh rob in greener grass um and you've got a couple of other credits coming up are you doing more acting or directing? What I mean, is it all across the board? I, I act in The Werewolf. Um, I, I play the boyfriend in Greener Grass because Jocelyn DeBoer and Don Luby uh, directed that film. And Jocelyn plays my ex-wife in Thunder Road. She's a wonderful oh, actor yes, and a director. Um, yeah, yeah. And so she, they, they wanted me to play the small part. And so I played play that. That was just a favor. But you'd be surprised. I don't have people knocking on my door to act and stuff. I'd love to act more. I just, nobody asks me. 
that's crazy. You're an incredible actor. It's, it's an incredible performance. It's so wonderful. And I could see you working with all, you know, all those guys who do the big comedy stuff and the straight stuff. I thought it was just an incredible performance. And I, I honestly, I thought your film was brilliant. And I really think people should go see this because honestly, you've done so well. And it's a credit for any filmmakers and what you can do if you get off your ass and do something about it. Um, final bit of advice for our listeners, Jim, before you leave us. Yeah, do it yourself. <laughs> Don't wait to be taken seriously. Take yourself seriously. That is amazing. Um, CJ, where can people follow you? At C. James Direct. And you can follow me at Charles Alderson and you can follow the Filmmakers Pod at Filmmakers Pod on Twitter. Thunder Road is a must-see for any indie filmmakers out there. Uh, so do it. Go watch that film. Go find it wherever you are in the world. Find that movie. It is on iTunes, um, but it is released in the UK this Friday, the 31st of May. Go see it. Honestly, you won't be disappointed. This is how to make indie films, people. We will see you next Tuesday, as always. Jim Cummings, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks, buddy. Take care, everyone. See you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com.